Boom, welcome back to another episode of the Espresso Hour, where the running joke is this is going to be much shorter than an hour, especially this week, because we are once again hyped up on caffeine. Got a lot of good stuff to talk about, Cole. I think today we want to dive into our approach to product improvement, how we talk about surveys, how we talk about interviews, and maybe give a couple of examples how we've done that with, with Ship30 and how we're doing it right now with ghostwriting. Yeah. Um, first of all, I realized our last episode was actually right under an hour. It was like 50 minutes because we were so uh, excited to talk about all the marketing stuff. Yeah, that was a good one. And a lot of positive feedback, a ton of DMs from people saying it's made them think a ton about their overall marketing, their funnels, their setup, things like that. So on that note, important, thanks for everyone who made the timestamps for the video last time. So if you didn't watch the last one, we said we'd give away one free spot into our next Ship30 cohort for anyone who replies to the video with a comment. One person out of everyone who replies to the video with comments of their three biggest takeaways with timestamps. We're making clips from these episodes as well. So it's helpful for us to know what you found the most helpful. Those are things we could go create more content on, more episodes. So we will announce the winners of that at the end of this episode. But if you want to be in the drawing for the next one, listen to this one, take down notes of your biggest takeaways as you're listening, and then leave a comment with those takeaways and the timestamps so we can find them. Building on our last episode, one of my, like one of the products I would love for us to build this year is create a template pack of those marketing emails that we talked about so that other people can use like a variation of that in their own funnel. So um, if that's something that you would like, please let us know in the comments and we'll uh, bump it up on our priority list because I think that would be cool. I like it. All right, where do you want to start with uh, product improvement, surveys, things like that? So I think two two quick, uh, one quick story and one uh, interesting example that I think will help frame this a lot. So back in 2014, is when I created my first digital product. Most people don't know that my first digital product was an ebook called Skinny to Shredded. And it was a fitness ebook. And how it came to be was I had started writing on Quora. One day I wrote this Quora answer. Um, the question was something like, is it possible to change so much that you no longer recognize yourself? And I put this before and after photo at the top of me as a teenager, really scrawny, skinny. I had really bad scoliosis in my back. Um, and then me like seven years later shredded as a bodybuilder. And I wrote it at work at the end of the day, I hit publish, took the train home. And by the time I got home, it was on the front page of Reddit and just exploding massively viral. All these comments being like, this guy's on steroids. I wasn't on steroids. It was really, really funny and interesting to observe. But as soon as that happened, I started getting all these DMs from people saying, asking the same two questions, what's your workout routine and what do you eat? So that weekend, as it was going viral, I stayed up, you know, for two days, I built my first website, which is still the website I have today. And I created two eBooks, one, which is here's how I lift and the other one, which is here's what I eat. And I called it skinny to shredded because I was an ectomorph. I had a lot of trouble putting on weight and I had like transformed myself and every person DMing me was like an 18 to 28 year old guy who was also an ectomorph. Just like, I look like you on the left. How do I get to you on the right? And this is how I created my first digital product. And 
I sold like five or ten thousand dollars worth of this ebook uh, really quickly as it was going viral, and then like throughout the year, you know, sold I don't know probably probably around ten grand that first year of ebooks. And I made the same mistake that I think every first time creator makes, which is kind of what I think we should dig into here, which is you create a product and then you never improve it. You create the first version and then you're just like, well, I did it. And then you leave it and then that's it. And I never improved that product. I never like took the time to talk to people who bought it. I never asked them questions. I never asked what other problems do you have? And it wasn't until like five years later that I realized skinny to shredded could have been my first million dollar business. And I totally just dropped the ball and missed it because I didn't take the time to talk to anyone or improve. The, the reason I think that this is so important and, and we should like be really honest about our process of doing this is because a lot of times I think people think that the bottleneck is marketing or money. And they're like, oh, I need to spend all this money to go get people, to get their attention. Um, and in reality, you probably have a full year ahead of you on nothing but product improvement. And the example to kind of tie this together that I love is that Hormozy quote, which is, if the only way your business could grow is if people, if current customers talked about it, what would you do? And that's the missed opportunity for so many people. It's like all those people that bought my ebook, there's a reason why they didn't go tell other people about it. And it probably wasn't good enough, but I just thought, oh, I spent the time to make it, so it must be good enough. So I just think that that lens is really helpful for people to realize that like, just because you sell five or $10,000 of a product doesn't mean that, oh, it's a failure or, oh, it didn't work or, oh, like that's it. It's like, no, that's the beginning. And now you have a year of improvement ahead of you. Yeah. There are a couple of ways we could go with this of the tactics of how you actually do the product improvement. We could talk about some of the surveys, some of the interviews. I think the overarching POV is you're looking to improve the product so that every person who goes through it tells their friends about it. And we're pretty close to that with ship 30. I think we can still make improvements on it, but you look at the way people talk about it on our celebration call, we just need to get more and more people onto that. But it was not that the case when Ship30 initially started. So we can talk a little bit about the original Ship30 cohort was a Slack accountability channel. For anyone who's never kind of heard that story, it was back all the way in um, November of 2020. And I was so terrified to charge money for it that it was $50 and you got your money back if you completed all 30 days. So I was in PayPal wiring money back and forth, like getting flagged because why was I returning all these products is a nightmare. But it was like 50 people. And I held 50 one-on-one -on -one interviews with those individuals during and after the cohort. And I asked, I can't remember the exact questions, but they were basically, what worked? What was your favorite part of this? What was your least favorite part of this? And what were you looking to get out of this? And I think those are the three questions that really can help you hone in on what parts of the product or experience to keep, what parts to cut, and then how to tailor it to the outcomes that maybe you're making an assumption that your customers want, but you're really not sure what that exact outcome is. So just to 
kind of tie this to Ship 30, the number one part that everyone said was the best part was the accountability in the community. They loved the fact that they could look around and when they were not motivated to write, they would wake up and see a swarm of other people writing and publishing. And that was the best thing that would help keep them going. They also really liked the live calls, which are where we all just got on Zoom. And at the time there was no curriculum, not really anything. We just kind of talked about what was going on. The least favorite parts, I think, were, I remember. So I thought that everyone wanted to have some kind of group from the beginning, like assigned to them. And what that meant was not everyone finished that initial cohort. And so we were creating groups of people where we'd put them in groups of like six and only three or two or three would still be writing at the end. And so they said their least favorite part was that it felt like their groups were incomplete because there were like three inactive members. And so I learned a big thing from that. And then the number one thing people were looking to get out of it was just build a daily writing habit. Like all they wanted to do was build a habit out of it. And so that changed all of the stuff we kept, stuff we doubled down on. And we've repeated that process for the first four or five cohorts of talking to basically every person, stripping away the parts that they said they didn't like and doubling down on the best parts. And I think you can automate this, you can do it one-on-one, -on -one, but I like to just frame the, the overall conversation you and I are gonna have around, I think those three things, favorite part, least favorite part, and what are you actually looking to get out of this? Yeah, three, three uh, little things I wanna double click on in here. So one is like one of the most um, unexpected benefits of doing this is you get to really know the people who are taking your course or consuming your product or using your service. And because so few people do this, I think people are actually surprised. Like how many times, Dickie, when we reached out, they're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting a message from you, right? And so you, you kind of underestimate how beneficial that is and how positive that comes off, especially to the early people who take your course or use your product or service. And the unexpected benefit of that is I can't tell you how many times I would we would have those early conversations and the person that I'd be talking to would be like, yeah, you know, I've spent my whole career doing project management. If you ever want help uh, building out that system, I'll do that. Yeah, I've spent the past 25 years doing coaching. If you ever want my input on how to create coaching groups, I'm happy to share. Like you, all of a sudden you tap into this massive well of people who have knowledge and just because you reached out, they're like, I have knowledge to share. If you want, I'll share it with you. And that's one of those things that people don't really realize that like humanity's kind, you know, like humanity actually is more kind than not kind. And when you reach out and you build those relationships, people are very quick to want to offer their help. And how many people, Dickie, were like, Ship 30 was really cool and I just want to pay it forward, like however I can help share with you. And I, I think that it's that part gets really lost and people think if I reach out to people like something negative is going to happen or they're not going to respond or whatever. And every time I'm, I see the complete opposite. Yeah. I mean, Daniel was part of that initial cohort where we did the interviews. So when I was talking to him, it was like, Hey, I just want to help out more. And now he's the most important member of our team. And real, real quick too, is I'm noticing this, uh, in our ghostwriting program. And I think this is sort of the other part of it, which is, yeah, we're talking about product improvement and, how to really take the time to make it better. But the reality is this, it actually is 
a step beyond that, which is really like obsessing over customer experience. And for years, I always kind of thought that the key to any sort of entrepreneurship, either like small one person business or building a high growth startup or whatever, I always thought the key was like, oh, it's just the product just has to be amazing. Or, oh, you just have to have amazing marketing. And in reality, a lot of times the idea is great or the idea is like good enough, but people just completely abandon the obsessing over the customer and the customer experience and the customer support. And a lot a lot of what I've learned over the past few years has been like, you can have a really mediocre idea, but if you are just so obsessive about making the person feel seen and heard and understood and anything they need, you're right there. Like that in and of itself is usually the unfair advantage. So part of this too is building that habit of like really caring about that and going above and beyond. And that's what's going to keep people coming back. Yeah. So this is the third thing we've built. Ship 30, Captain Stable, and now the Ghostwriting uh, Academy. And so we're with each one of these, we're learning things we already know to apply to the new one. And we're also applying the frameworks that we learned from the first two of how to more quickly improve the Ghostwriting Academy, right? So just on a tactical level, what we did were we looked at everyone who took the program and we sorted it by results. So who, based on our engagement um, or activation point tracking and overall success, we grouped them into three and tried to have interviews with those three groups. One, so there. this is like a huge rabbit hole, but you can, if you're selling some kind of service-based or coaching, you can look at the results everyone had and try to almost niche down on who had the most results and then tailor all of your marketing to them. But I think that's a little bit beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about here. I think it's more, we then set up Calendly's and held group interviews on top of sending surveys to every single person. So we sent surveys and you can talk a little bit about the questions that I know you put that survey together. So what you were looking to glean from that. And then the power of group interviews, if I could do it all over again, and I was selling any kind of digital product, and this is pretty tactical, but I would have a standing hour block on my calendar every single week with an automated Calendly invite to anyone who's ever bought my product saying, hey, come talk to me about it. What'd you like? What'd you not like? What, how, what could be improved? And make it a group thing. And if you had that standing on your calendar every week, the number of insights, I think we underestimate how much we can learn from one or two conversations. And so having four people who bought your thing on a call with you talking about why they bought it, what potentially held them back from buying it if they were on the fence, you know, what they would have liked, what you could add, that goes a long way. And so if anyone's listening to this, selling something could be a $100 product. Set up that Calendly and start holding customer interviews because those are some of the most you learn 10 times more than just like, oh, how do I improve this? You just go ask. Yeah, and again, unexpected benefit. Can't tell you how many times we do those calls and someone goes, and if you built this, I would give you more money. Like they literally say to you, and this is the next thing you need to build in order for me to pay you more. So all of this, you know, it's such a faulty belief that 
you need to sit in your room and stare out your window and wait for the like magical startup idea to hit you. And in reality, you just need to go talk to five customers. And one of them is going to be like, and if you solve this other problem for me, I'll pay you more. So just, I, I guess, as the, the framing of uh, exactly how we did this, if anyone wants to sort of copy this framework. So we finished our, the first cohort, uh, <laughs> cohort. We finished the first ghostwriting cohort. That's a new word. We finished a cohort. And, uh, we wanted to learn about it. And the thing was, this is where it gets really easy, you know, the undisciplined thinking. When we just asked people on the last call, what did you think of this? Everybody was like, I loved it. It was amazing. And it's very easy in that moment to go, I don't need to do any follow-up. I don't need to do any one-on-ones because everyone said that it was amazing. But there is benefit in doing that because you build the relationships, you get to hear people's individual thoughts and reflections. So be disciplined and go and do it, right? Next step is we put together a survey. We sent the survey to everyone and then we followed up two days later and we're like, hey, please make, please take five minutes to take the survey. And the key to surveys I've learned is to not ask questions like, you know, rate this zero to 10, right? Because the number three and four and five and six and seven, like it's all just sort of like a a white blob of noise. It doesn't really tell you a lot. The framework I like for surveys is asking questions where you pull out the activation points, pull out the things that you want the people to do that they need to do in order to be successful. And you ask questions like, did you do it? No, yes, but, or yes, I crushed it. Like those are kind of like the three tiers. It's like you either didn't do it, you did it, but some sort of obstacle or you crushed it. And that's what you're, you're trying to figure out like at each step, where are people getting stuck? You know, what do they need help with? And then after the survey, which the survey basically just sort of gives us more objective data. And there's a couple questions in there like, do you have any other ideas? Or, you know, did you run into any other problems? So you're trying to get some language from people. And then we scheduled these three calls. Then the three calls were people that crushed it, right? It was just kind of that same framework I just outlined. Crushed it or second tier, I did most of the things, but some sort of obstacle or third tier, no, I didn't do it or no, I didn't accomplish the activation point. And in each group, just sort of asking people like, what did you run into? What did you like? What didn't you like? And you're trying to get the language from them. And it was really interesting going through that process and how many, how many things like we knew, but you just get there so much faster when someone says it to you directly and you have their language. So now, again, we talk about this copywriting hack all the time. If someone says to you a sentence that really describes their problem, don't try and reinvent the wheel. Literally just copy paste that sentence of what they said and build that into the curriculum. Are you struggling with this? They're like, yeah, how did you know that? Because I'm saying the thing that you said to me back to you. Ooh, okay. So now we're getting into this because I think the framework that you're using when you're having these interviews is you want to look at the people who had the most success. Well, really you want to look at all three tiers and you want to look at what they did or didn't do. And then you want to look at the type of person that's in each of those buckets, right? So you're going to see commonalities of your most successful student or customer. They did certain things and they were a certain type of person, had some kind of predisposition, some kind of background. And your least successful, 
didn't do certain things or they were a certain type of person. And then that middle tier, you're going to notice that hyper successful group of people. There was probably a certain type of person in that. And that same type of person is probably in that middle bucket too, but they didn't do something. They didn't do one or two things. And that was all they needed to have done to then ascend to that higher tier bucket. So I think that's one thing you're looking for. Then you're looking for in the bottom tier, like what are the commonalities of the people who maybe tried to do everything, but just didn't have any success with it. And it's probably like a skill gap or an experience gap. And you wanna make sure you don't let them in in the future. So this is an infinite rabbit hole, but I'm, I'm almost talking this out, out loud of what you're actually looking to find from these interviews. Yeah, and the, the meta takeaway is, I mean, this is where you get into the advanced version, but the meta takeaway is you have your first cohort or you sell your first batch of products or whatever, and then you start to notice differences between people who are successful versus people who aren't successful. And over time, you start making iterations on the product or the service to attract and cater to the archetype of person that is most likely to be successful. And I think this is this is where like really nuanced thinking gets lost for people because again, it's the same thing with writing. Everyone thinks I am successful if I attract everyone. And in reality, it's the opposite. Your product is less successful if you're attracting everyone because you have a larger and larger group of people that aren't successful doing it. So you actually want to build the curriculum or build the product or the service to be more and more specific to a certain archetype that is most likely to be successful because the more people who are successful, the more they're going to talk about it, the more of that archetype you're going to attract. And it creates that virtuous cycle. Yeah, Alex Ramosi had a good podcast that I listened to this morning on why Harvard is successful and he was comparing it to the current like internet education space and had some good takeaways here. One of the cool ones was you look at what Harvard does. They don't let in most people because the people they don't let in wouldn't reflect strongly on the Harvard brand and go get results. So there's this like virtuous cycle of the people that they let into Harvard are more than likely going to do the things at Harvard that then allow them to get jobs in the real world, which then makes them talk good about Harvard and be a signal of the brand. And I think that's your goal with any kind of, especially a service or coaching-based business. Digital product, low ticket, inexpensive, you don't need to be vetting your customers, right? They're either gonna buy it and they're gonna use it or they're gonna buy it and not use it. I think you wanna be attracting the certain type of person that's going to use it, but at the end of the day, you don't have full control over that. When you are going higher ticket, the worst thing you can do is be letting people into your program that aren't going to see results. Because that's who would leave a negative review. That is who wouldn't be telling their friends. But if you let in only people that you learn from two or three or four quote unquote beta cohorts of who does the best, then you know that every person who goes through it is going to be a star. They're going to be easy case studies for you. And that's the virtuous cycle on the positive side. So with any kind of initial product launch, you're in the, how do I find out what people are looking to get out of this, tailor that correctly, and who is the type of person that is actually going to get the most out of this and further tailor it. And really, that's where we're at right now. We have some decisions on who we're going to let in and not let in in the future based on their experience, based on our takeaways from these conversations. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think a really helpful lens for low ticket, and we'll we'll say low ticket is anything under 200 bucks. Really helpful lens for low ticket is that the biggest value of having a product like that is your ability to gather data. So even though you don't necessarily need to like over-engineer it because it's a $200 product or less, again, I go back to my missed opportunity with my, you know, $20 fitness ebook. I still should have talked to every person who bought that ebook because they would have told me the next problem to solve. And that next problem is probably my high ticket. And so again, I think so often where people get stuck, even in solopreneurship or building their first digital product or you know any sort of internet businesses, they think that it's about them coming up with the idea. And in reality, it's really not. Like the, the much better, more efficient, more effective path is for you to not come up with the idea, but for you to just go talk to people that have problems, like the sort of person that you want to help and just keep having conversations until you realize, wow, I've talked to 10 people and eight of them said that they have the same problem in common. I should probably solve that problem, right? That's that's where this constant improvement lens is so helpful. Yeah, the group interview of low ticket product buyers are going to inform your new one. So here, let me pull something up that I think people will find useful just on a tactical basis of actually going and what do you ask? in some of these. If you have a post-purchase survey, I think these are three questions that are super helpful. Let me find these. Okay, the number one outcome you're looking to achieve. So at the end of the day, like you make up any kind of product, you don't really know exactly what people are trying to accomplish. And you can tweak your landing page based on that of, hey, I'm really looking to get this out of it. Then another crucial one is ask, was there anything that had them on the fence from buying? That will give you a ton of insight on ways you can improve your copy, your landing pages, your offer, things like that. And then the last is, what's the if I solve this problem, what's the very next thing I could help you with? Just ask those and you can use those in your surveys or in your interviews. I still, I, we're still building things that people have answered the SHIP30 onboarding survey with from those questions. Yeah, just to to drive home like how how important this is and how this plays out. So, I learned when I was building my ghostwriting agency that when I would sell uh to founders, CEOs, they basically all wanted the same three outcomes. They didn't all want all three of them. They all wanted like one of the three. And it was either I want to position myself as a thought leader to elevate the company that I'm building, just presence, awareness, marketing for the company I'm building. I want to generate deal flow for myself. I'm an investor, you know, or I've just had a career for 20, 30 years. I have a lot of really interesting frameworks. I just want to share them as goodwill because I know opportunities will come from that. Once I learned those three, every single sales call that I took literally started with them going, tell me a little bit about the service. And I would go, yeah, well, thought leadership articles, because, you know, people like you want to either position themselves as a thought leader, increase deal flow, or, right? And I'm just listing off the same three outcomes that all these clients have told me. 
And that same logic and mentality, right? What When you do that, what happens? At the very beginning of the conversation, one of them self-selects and they go, oh yeah, yeah, I want the service for this. And they say that to you. And you go, great. Now it's like an if-then game. So you say, I know you probably want one of these three outcomes. They go, yeah, I want outcome A. And then the rest of the sales call for 20 minutes is you just catering to outcome A because they told you that's what they want. And the same is true that's the manual version, sales version of a service, right? The same is true for a digital product, like Ship30's landing page. It's like, we know you probably want one of these five outcomes, right? And then over time, Dickie, this is what we want to build, which is like building funnels where people self-select and we're like, okay, well, we know that you said this outcome, so we're going to cater all of the messaging and all of our emails to you for just that one outcome. And you can't really get there it's the same with writing that we talk about all the time. Like when people start Ship 30, they think they know what they want to write about and then they start writing and they realize readers are interested in something different. Well, the same is true with marketing and product and building any sort of business, which is you think you know what the customer wants. And then when you go and talk to them, you actually realize that they want something slightly different. And your job is to take that language and cater and, and fix and improve your product to like laser focus on the thing they told you that they want. Yeah, and 7,000 students later, we've just figured out like the three to five things people want. Our only ability to go and create those different lenses came from literally 7,000 survey answers. And that takes a long time and like many, many, many hours of product improvement for one outcome. All we're helping you do is start writing online. If we're gonna eventually tailor Ship30 to deliver slightly different outcomes based on what you want, that's the key to tripling it from here. We've reached a point where the number of people we're attracting on a given basis who would be likely to join Ship30 is relatively constant, but tripling the number of them that actually sign up and join is much harder than attracting them. But that's how you take the next step, right? All those people all want different things. And there's a reason that 99% of them aren't joining. If we were to figure out exactly what those reasons were, it's probably because we're not communicating the thing they want. And this is all tactical. And obviously you have to get to a certain stage to have this kind of conversation and do this type of thinking, but it's all the same, right? From the very beginning, you have to figure out what is one outcome you're gonna deliver. And then as you go from there and have more data overall, you can pick, okay, I wanna start delivering these three to five. I can start to tailor things in a more customizable way, but I wouldn't waste time on that in the beginning. Again, it all goes back to taking the long view versus everyone's like, I just want to make money tonight. So before they take any time to get to know the person that they're trying to help, they're like, I built a course and it's a thousand dollars, buy it. Right. And, and you need to take the time to really understand who you're trying to help. And in the short term, it seems like you're, you're making it harder for yourself to make money, but in the medium term, you lap everybody else because you very quickly understand what problem you're solving. And Dickie, I saw you tweet this recently. I don't know if it, it's a Dickieism or if you got it from someone else, but I can't stop thinking about it, which is the goal isn't to grow fast. The goal is to grow forever. And I feel like that mentality is very, very important whenever you're launching or trying to create something brand new, is the goal is not to make $1,000 tonight. The, the goal is to do what you need to do in the beginning such that 
you have a business that makes money for a very, very long time. And, you know, we're now starting to see it with Ship30. Like there's a world where we don't upgrade anything in Ship30 for the next five years and it keeps running. And a lot of that has to do with the work that we put in at the beginning to really understand who we're helping and really drive home those outcomes. So yeah, the goal is not to grow fast. The goal is to grow forever. And that's both audience building, that's product building. It's something we need to keep top of mind as we're building ghostwriting. It's the goal is not necessarily to hit a certain number of students per month. Now it's to still be hitting that number in five years. If you started thinking about your digital products or your services, not of how many students can I have this month, but how many can I have each month in five years for five years in a row, you would think much different about how you set up your product, how you do your marketing, how you create your content. And it's hard. It's very easy to sit here and say, think like that if you've never done it before, right? There is like a, it's very hard to actually quantify, but this trade-off of how long your time horizon can be. Like in the beginning, you've never made any money making 10 grand on digital products. You're not able to think two years out. It's like, I, I got to figure out this skill now. But it's all about, and I wrote about this in my annual review of wealth is the, wealth is a measure of the time horizon of your thinking. And so the wealthier you are as a person or as a business, it's how long in the future you can start to make decisions. Like the poorest person in the world who's going, you know, meal to meal can't think beyond their next meal. But obviously Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are thinking in decades and centuries of how they're going to keep their legacy going. So I think about that a lot in businesses. You have to get to a certain point to then start not thinking like, what do I need to create at the end of this week? But it's, what do I create at the end of this quarter or by the end of this year or over the next five years? And we're still leveling up in that process. Like we're right now starting to think in quarters for really the first time. Yeah. We were always thinking in 30 day increments. It's like, oh, ship 30 cohorts done. We have 30 days to improve it, uh, right? It takes a while to unlock each new level. And it takes a while to unlock it and a while to untrain the behavior. Of the previous level. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way to get to that next level is to stop doing the things and thinking the way that got you here. It's very meta. Oh, totally. I, as like a, yeah, the final little wrap up point, like for example, I can't tell you how many times in the past two years I've gotten hit up for ghostwriting opportunities. And every single one is like a, a nice little nudge or reminder being like, are you going to do the old thing or are you going to press forward, untrain that behavior, do the new thing? And that that is what's required in order to keep growing is like, mastering the level and then untraining what you've just learned such that you can grow into the next level. And yeah, sounds like uh, we should devote a whole episode to that because I think that's a really, really great topic. I like that. So if you want to hear more about the mindset and the levels of time horizon thinking, leave a comment. Now let's find out who won this week? And as a reminder, if you want a chance at a free entry into the next Ship 30 cohort, you can enter the contest in multiple ways. If you write a public Twitter thread and tag us, if you leave a five-star review and send it to us, if you leave comment on YouTube. Alrighty, lots of good entries on this one. Thanks for everyone who wrote up their takeaways. The winner this week is Sarah from SGA Holistics. She had three golden nuggets um, about setting expectations, things we could go double down on. So thank you for sharing those, Sarah. We will get in touch with you 
to give you your free seat into our July Ship 30 cohort. Again, to enter the contest, leave a comment on YouTube with your three biggest takeaways with timestamps or write a Twitter thread with your three biggest takeaways or leave us a five-star review, take a screenshot, send us a Twitter DM with that picture and you will be entered. That's all we got for this episode. Have a good one. Y'all, thanks for tuning in.